Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. It's been our habit for decades to have a sermon on Mother's Day at least, on motherhood and fatherhood, and this year we're not going to do it. Um, but in thinking about today being Mother's Day first, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of you who are women. Uh, not just to those of you who have had children, but to those of you who haven't. Um, every woman is a mother. And every man will tell you that unless he's a twisted sister. And uh, I always remind people that Mother Teresa was never married, never had children, and she was a mother. And men who have not been twisted by our culture love women. Um, And they love women as God made us to love women. Fathers love mothers, and I hope you as women will love fathers. And uh, I do wish you a happy Mother's Day. I, I, I myself, when I was a little boy, my mother used to say to me, Tim, Timmy, 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 why don't you play with the little boys? And I said, because girls is more fun. My mother always reminded me of that. But I think I was speaking for every man in saying that. You know, men are kind of boring. But happy Mother's Day. And uh, we do honor motherhood here. That's the reason why I am so uh, <laughs> deaf on our culture wars today, because they rob women of joy, and that should not be. We should take great delight in our mothers. I don't know, well, I do know what I would be without my mother. (laughs) Oh my goodness, you think I'm bad now. You should have known me without my mother. And imagine, imagine what Bob Kapowitz had been without his stepmother, right, Bob? Wasn't it your stepmother that kicked you and made you I think it was, wasn't it? I think it was his stepmother who told him to stop being a baby and fight through it. Yeah. By the way, if you have not read Bob's autobiography, you really ought to read it. It's wonderful. And uh, Bob, do you have copies of that at home? You do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's why Bob's on my brain. <laughs> I know you should never do it in, in a worship service, but let's sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Bob. Happy birthday to you. Some of you who don't know Bob, uh, I refer to Bob as the finishing school for men preparing to be fathers and husbands. Because 
We have had a ton of men in this church who have, at one time and another, lived with Bob and taken care of him. And as you can tell, Bob has cerebral palsy, and when you take care of him, you do everything that you do for yourself. And some men get washed out. Some men go in there, and Bob says to them, no, you're leaving. And some of us have had that happen to us. But if you survive, if Bob decides that he accepts you and loves you, it's very sweet because then Bob will actually often find you a wife. Bob, how many, how many weddings have you been best man in? I mean, how many weddings have you been in the bridal or, or the groom's party in? In yours, okay? And how old are you, Carol? No. How much do you weigh? No, 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 no. <laughs> so how many? 80. I remember when I was in a hospital room with Bob, and he was sick. And I was on one side of the bed, and Nathan Crum was on the other side of the bed. And at that time, both Nathan and John Crum were working with Bob. Nathan had moved out of the house. Nathan, are you here? And uh, I remember Nathan saying to Bob as I stood there, John needs to get out of the house. And Bob said, yes, I know. And Bob said he needs to get out of the house because he needs to get on with his life. And so Bob kicked John out of his house. And only because of that did John discover to kneel. <laughs> and, you know, Bob has a number of times made, taken disciplinary action with men in our church. And uh, it has been such a help to this church. And by disciplinary, I mean things like telling John it's time for you to leave. I remember when he said, you had to leave, Curtis. I remember why. And it was good. It was a very good next step for Curtis. So if you're new here or if you don't know Bob, uh, an awful lot of the godliness of this church is because of Bob. And he has such a sense of humor and communicating is so hard for him now that you tend to be patronizing of him and oh, nice Bob, nice Bob. And he is nice, but he's nobody's fool, trust me. So Bob, we are very grateful to God, very grateful to God for you, Bob. And that's no joke and don't make a joke out of it. All right, dear brother. Thank you, Lord, for Bob. So, yeah, I've got you on my mind because it was your 73rd birthday. How many men with cerebral palsy live to be 73? What do you think it is? I bet that he's in the 95th plus percentile. Father, we thank you for Bob. We thank you for all the men who have worked under him. We thank you for Lucas and others who have managed his home, Caleb, so many men. We thank you for his family and the way they have been faithful to their son, to their nephew, to their cousin. 
And we pray your blessing on Bob and his house and his family. Thank you for your good gift to us in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, Bob is also a Jew. (laughs) And that's why his sense of humor is so, uh, shall we say, pungent. This week our text is in Romans chapter 10, only two verses. And before we read it, I want to say to you this morning, you need to be a Christian. You need to confess Christ as Lord. Now let's hear our text. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. I'm going to begin with verse 8 from last week because it, it has continuity with this week. But what does it say? And then the quote, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So you see where it's capital letters. Anytime that happens in the NASB, the version we use, that is an indication that that is a rough or a close translation of the Old Testament. So the Apostle Paul here is quoting the Old Testament, and it's in quotes, but Regardless of whether or not it's in quotes, if it's all caps, that indicates it's a quote from the Old Testament. So what does it, what does God's word in the Old Testament, what does it say? And then the quote, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Then the explanation that is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that, so this is this week's text, this is the word of faith that we are preaching, that... If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's natural when the Apostle Paul says the word of faith which we're preaching, it's natural. We want to know what was the word that he was preaching. What did the Apostle Paul preach? You know, you can have a lot of discussion about preachers and how people preach, what their methods are, what their quirks are. Um, I've read a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, every time he turns around, He'll stop and he'll say, this is the most important truth in Scripture. You know, well, that's quirky, you know. It's like this one and this one and this one. These are all the most important things in Scripture, right, you know. Um, Some preachers, Charles Stanley, I used to listen to him. I don't anymore. But Charles Stanley would say, now listen, you know, with his southern accent. Now listen, you know. Um... What did the Apostle Paul preach like? What was his message? You know, you get hints of it in Scripture, what the Apostle Paul and the other apostles would preach. Uh, One of my favorite sections in in the book of Acts is his, his his dealing with the men of Athens. And the reason I love that is, in, during our life, we've lived in Boulder, we've lived in Madison, we've lived in Bloomington, you know, Wheaton, and it's like, 
academics, you know? And so you look at the Apostle Paul dealing with the most sophisticated intellects of the world in the Areopagus. It's fascinating to see how he deals with them. I always comment on the fact that the Apostle Paul there talks about how God has established the boundaries of the nations, that in God we live and move and have our being. And if you think of this as like a resident of Bloomington with IU, in him, think about how completely countercultural it is in Bloomington to say, in him we live and move and have our being. And he's established the boundaries, right? And then he says that to these men in Athens, he says, in the past, God's overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And you know, you feel the weight of that, and it is mind-boggling. I always picture him as being, you know, in Oxford Square or in Cambridge, uh, telling all the... All the, <laughs> all the professors at IU, that in the past, God's overlooked their ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What did the Apostle Paul preach? He turned the world upside down. We know that. We know that everywhere he went, there was a riot. <laughs> you know? You remember the... <laughs> The metal workers got all upset at him because when people became Christians, they, be, they stopped buying all these uh, idols, you know, that the metal workers made. Um, one time had to be let, let over the wall in a basket because they wanted to kill him. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned again. What did he preach? By the time he died, the Roman Empire had been turned upside down. And the mop-up operation continued for about three centuries to the point where, I have to be careful here, where the ethical and moral commitments resident in the word of God, okay, the Ten Commandments, prevailed in the Roman Empire. We have trouble realizing that what we are doing today in the West is overthrowing the wonderful influence that the church had on paganism that we call today Christendom with a sneer. And so now we've gone back to killing the unborn children, exposing them. We wipe out people with Down syndrome in the womb, you know. What did Paul preach? What did the other apostles preach? Even from a rhetorical position, in other words, even if you're just a student of the spoken word, you know, you collect speeches, you'd want to know, how did this man flip the world upside down? What did God do through him? What did he actually say? What did he say? Remember the dude, Eutychus. Remember Eutychus. 
Whatever the Apostle Paul said, he said it for so long that Eutychus <laughs> fell asleep, fell out the window, and died. Remember that? <laughs> I'm back on my timer this morning. You'll all be happy to know. Jody and Phil gave me the word, dude, cut it shorter. And so I thought, you know, I've forgotten about that. Yep, I'll go back. So you're going to get out of here inside of 42, it was 43 minutes the first service. (laughs) I heard that. (laughs) What did he preach? That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That. Okay, here it is. It's a summary. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if the Apostle Paul turned the Roman Empire upside down, and those are the two things he preached, we must be missing something. (laughs) You know? It just doesn't make any sense. You know? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, isn't that how we sort of hear it, you know? Said with authority. (laughs) There must be more to it than what is said here, right? Because it turned the Roman Empire upside down, and they kept trying to kill him. They killed him, they hated him, they killed him, they hated him. You can do a good diagram of the book of Acts by saying that the Apostle Paul caused a riot in one city and barely escaped with his life and then caused a riot in the next city. It's a good outline of the book of Acts. And so he can't have preached blah, 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 I mean, who's going to like try to kill him for saying that? And so what we have to do is we have to realize that in our day, there is a surfeit of truth scripturally that has made us gag. There is so much blah, 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 blah that sounds like this on all the airwaves, all the television stations, all the books, all the churches. And it's so unutterably boring. And it has absolutely no effect on anything. Okay? Okay? That it can't be what he preached. Either that or we don't understand these truths. And of course, that's, that's the case. They don't have any of the scandal that they had when he said them. None of it. 
dust. They're just like blah, 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 blah. So what was it he said again? He says that if, so we have an if-then construction here, if this, then that. But the word then isn't here, okay? If, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then the then is missing. Then you will be saved. If you do these two things, you will be saved. All right, what are the two things? Well, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now we have a problem here, which is, that it doesn't make sense that he would begin with your mouth and then move to your heart, right? It makes more sense that he would begin with your heart and move to your mouth. Because the heart motivates the mouth, generally, right? So why is it that he begins with the mouth and then moves to the heart? Would you notice that in the next verse, he reverses the order? Did you notice that? He says in the next verse, for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. So the first time it's mouth-heart, the second time it's heart-mouth. Why is it mouth-heart the first time? Well, it's because he's quoting from Leviticus. And that's precisely how Leviticus puts it in that order. With your mouth and in your heart. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Okay, And so that's the reason that he quotes it in the order he does. He's quoting it from the Old Testament. These were people who lived in an oral culture. All right, It's a lot like rap, where you put your stuff together in such a way that you hear the rap, you remember the rap. That's how they passed on their history. That's how they passed on Scripture. And so they knew what the order was, and the Apostle Paul followed it because he's proving from the Old Testament that Jesus and the church are in continuity with Moses and the Pentateuch. And so that's why the order is the way it is. Now, what are the two things again? The two things are confess with your mouth what? Jesus is Lord. Now, what on earth does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Okay. This is one of those places it's very difficult for a pastor to preach. And the reason is we have no concept of authority or submission. None. If you were to sum up what the main moral, the main point of social media is today, it is despise authority. We've moved way past the bumper stickers of my childhood that said, question authority. <laughs> you know? Now it's despise authority. The only people you can trust are the people who have no responsibility and no authority. All right? And so when it says Jesus is Lord, it presupposes that there's some notion of what a Lord is, but we don't have any. And that's part of the reason it's just blah, 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 blah. You know? Jesus is Lord. Well, yeah. Did you know that when I was just coming to Bloomington back in the early 90s, there was a major controversy in the conservative Christian world, and it was called the Lordship Controversy. Any of you remember it? A couple of you. 
And in that controversy, John MacArthur issued a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. I remember reading that book and being so thankful that somebody was standing up for the authority of Jesus. Because a lot of the dispensationals had gotten so backed up into their ghetto and their corner that they were denying that there had to be any obedience to Jesus because if there had to be any obedience to Jesus, it wasn't by grace. So it was this grace alone movement that said that if you added anything that was necessary, anything at all to grace, all right, that you were denying the substitutionary, that you were denying salvation. But you notice here, we have an if-then construction. (laughs) If you confess with your mouth, so what is this? Confessing with your mouth is what earns you salvation? Is that what the Apostle Paul is teaching? And believe in your heart. No, don't add heart, just believe. And so it really was a movement that said, all you have to do is give intellectual assent to the concept of Jesus dying for your sins and you are saved. It doesn't matter what you did before, it didn't matter what you did afterwards. And John MacArthur wrote the gospel according to Jesus, blew it to smithereens. How on earth do you understand Christian faith that does not have at the center the lordship of Jesus Christ? How do you do that? It's such an awful thing. to think that people that claim the name of Jesus Christ would try to remove from Scripture the command. To produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Would remove the statement in Ephesians that God called us to himself and gave us faith because he had works that we were to do. That he had created works for us to do. The fact that at the last banquet, the marriage feast of the Lamb, that that God would be pleased by us being clothed by our good works. The idea that if works matter and if submission to God matters, that then God's grace doesn't matter. The idea that you have in opposition obedience to God and God's mercy. You know, it's crazy. And yet that was the condition we were in 30 years ago. I'm standing here (laughs) quiet because 
that doctrinal battle, well, we, it didn't divide us as a church, but we lost really two very good men because of that battle. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Listen, there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you go to the book of Acts and you read it from the beginning of the book of Acts to the end, what it says over and over and over again is that the first Christians never stopped saying, Jesus is Lord. And when they said Lord, they didn't mean somebody who, uh, who gave you wise counsel without command. When you say Lord, it means he has command authority. It means when he says jump, you say, how oh, high? It would be so helpful if everybody in the church understood the military. I so often grieve the absence of people growing up on farms and having any idea what slaughter is, what milking is, what fencing is, what shepherds are. How do you understand scripture with no agrarian background? You don't even see it. You know, people that see even a little chicken butchered are horrified. Danger, danger, danger. And then you get into the issue of authority in scripture. Nobody's been in the military. And now we have a kinder, gentler military. About the only place that there is any expectation of authority and submission anymore is in a courtroom, and that is quickly evaporating. I used to, when I was a young pastor, fantasize about someday being in a courtroom and just being able to walk in to give a judgment and having everybody all rise, you know. (laughs) You know, in other words, I felt the impotence of being a pastor just completely devoid of any authority whatsoever. It was almost like if I would say something, then it was reverse psychology. They'd laugh, you know? And so you'd try to figure out what you could say that was the opposite of the truth so that they'd laugh at that and then you could trot out the truth, (laughs) you know? It was just like, oh my goodness. We have no sense of authority. I remember when Prince Charles came to, uh, am I saying that right? It is Prince Charles. Yeah, yeah, Prince Charles. He came to Chicago. I remember seeing the Chicago Tribune, and it went on and on about how we do not have a king. We are a free and enlightened people, and we're not going to make a big deal out of Prince Charles. You know, they were, oh man, oh, 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 oh yeah, buddy. And then Prince Charles came to town, and I mean, the whole town shut down. I mean, there was nothing but Prince Charles and 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 even Oakbrook. Oakbrook, you know, they had a polo match for Prince Charles. Everyone's just falling all over themselves, you know. Prince Charles, you know. Nothing like rebels to fawn over authority. Perfect, perfectly, perfectly vulnerable. Rebels always are to totalitarianism. 
We don't have any Lord. We don't have any Lord. And yet here, here he is, Jesus, the Son of God, God's only begotten. For God so loved the world that he sent this Son, the only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And you think, this is the only begotten Son of God. Do you think we could somehow manage to love him and to obey him? Do you think we could somehow manage to recognize and submit to his authority? Do you think we could somehow manage to grieve and mourn and cry. When we hold him up to shame. Do you think we could manage that? Huh? Do you think we could manage that? He gave himself for us. Do you think we could manage that? Do you think we could manage setting aside all our precious scars and pain and all our self-justifications, all our pride, all our slothfulness, all our rebellious... Do you think we could set that aside and live to obey and honor and glorify him? Do you think we... Could we manage that? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about blah, 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 That's not what I'm talking about. I mean really love him and honor him and obey him. You think we could do that? Would that be too much for us to do? He who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself unto death, even the death on a cross. Do you think that we could confess him as Lord? Or would that be demeaning to us? Would that be a betrayal of the dignity that you and I have as women and as men, as Americans with an American passport? This is the gospel that he preached to us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you say, oh, yeah, 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 I I go to church Christmas and Easter. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know? Yeah, he was raised from the dead, right? Right? But the problem is... <laughs> The problem is, to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is not just the tomb was opened, Jesus came out. This is a placeholder for everything about the method of salvation. Because after all, if he was dead, you have to immediately say, why was he dead? And so... He was dead, and he was raised from the dead. So you go back to dead, and you say, well, he was dead because the Jews demanded that their Messiah be killed. And then the Romans were the ones that actually carried it out. And so to believe that God raised him from the dead, obviously is putting in opposition to each other, the Jews and the Romans on one side, and God on the other. Because they killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And so to believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, is to see that they killed him as a rebel and as a sinner, and God vindicated him, (laughs) God would not abandon him to the grave. (laughs) No, no. Oh, obviously, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. It's a little bit more than just up from the grave he arose, right? It's a little more. It's to know that God vindicated his son. And God declared him to be the righteousness of God. He was the righteous when God would not abandon him to the grave. Oh, no. And so all of a sudden, your mind starts opening up to the concept, not just of Jesus as Lord, the authority, the majesty, the submission, the honor. But now God raised him from the, oh, he is the holy one. He is the righteous one. He was the one that his father vindicated by raising him from the dead. Do you believe that in your heart? Do you believe that God contradicted, contradicted, and made a fool out of the Romans and the Jews at the time who had put his son in the grave? Do you feel that? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead in your heart. And you say, well, yeah, I know I'm going to die sometime. Everybody dies sometime. And so if I didn't believe in the resurrection, I would be of all people most miserable, most foolish. So I do believe in the resurrection. I have the hope of the resurrection. I have a lot of loved ones in the grave. And I say, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your loved ones in the grave. I'm talking about Jesus. God raised his son from the grave. What would you owe that son? (laughs) Are you with me? If we killed him, and I say we because we would have, If we killed him and then God raised him from the dead, now do you realize what a radical statement that is? Do you realize that again and again the sermons in the book of Acts end with the preacher saying this, you killed him. 
They actually say that to the people listening, but God raised him from the dead. (laughs) And we read that when Peter preached that, said those things in the day of Pentecost, do you remember how the people responded? The people responded by pleading with him to tell them what to do. They were scared out of their wits. They were petrified that God had raised him from the dead and vindicated this man that they had killed. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. (laughs) Remember last week, I went through all the different things we want to be saved from. Remember this? Remember? Oh, let's be saved from COVID. Oh, let's be saved from tyranny. Oh, let's be saved from Donald Trump. Oh, let's be saved from the lying media. I want to be saved. Let's be saved from ignorance. Let's be saved from vaccination. Let's be saved from mandatory vaccination. Let's be saved from masks. Let's be saved from the unmasked. Who of us wants to be saved from his sin? What is your problem? I mean, really. Your problem is your sin. I don't know that there are any of us who lie in bed at night grieving over Donald Trump. But I know an awful lot of us lie in bed at night grieving over our sin. Who will save us from our sin? There is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved, and that's the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you have the promise of God that you will be saved. I have a young woman in this church that she and her daddy and I have worked hard to get her to smile. You know, I, I, I told my daughters and I tell her that, you know, God has given the world young women so they will smile. <laughs> Come on, you can smile. It won't hurt you even if you are German. Come on, give me a smile. Come on, give me a smile. She won't give me a smile. Well, will you give me a smile? That's about the way Michael used to do it. Michael would say, I don't feel like smiling. Right, Michael? Yeah. And so she'd sulk and she'd frown and, oh, she was her own woman. 
Oh yeah, buddy? And I'd say to Michael, Michael, why do you think God made you beautiful? That didn't help. I said, listen, I am your father, and when I want you to smile, you smile. Because I need it. I've had a hard day. I come home. I have a beautiful young woman in my home. I want a smile. I don't feel like it, Daddy. Tell them it's the truth. So one day we were in the dining room, and she was over by the stairs behind the table. So we were about this far from each other. And she's over there telling me she doesn't want to smile. But she's a woman. What is the point of being a woman in the springtime of life and not smile? That's a simple thought I had as her father. She could bless me with a smile. And I want to be blessed. Give me a smile, please. But she didn't feel like it. So I said to her, you know, Michael, you need to learn that your feelings are subordinate to your will. And now you give me a smile. God was very kind to me in giving me children who didn't write me up on the internet but instead submitted and smiled. And I tell you, when Michael would smile at me, the whole world was beautiful. That's all I needed. And so this morning, her father is dead. And I got a smile from her. And... I got it before I asked her to give it to me. She just did it. And why did she smile at me? The reason she smiled is that I said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, you will be saved. You see, our children can't believe that God is merciful. They can't believe that God would save them. They know what they're like. And I think she's pretty normal for all of us in thinking that she's beyond hope, you know? But here God, in his mercy, looks at me and looks at you and says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead. What? What, Abe? What comes next? You will be saved. Now, does that sound like something that you can't bank on? You will be saved? Does that sound like something that's like um, tenuous? Does it sound like something that we can't depend upon? Huh? Huh? So, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be saved? 
Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's it. The gospel is unbelievably simple. It really is. Now, I've opened up what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. You have to submit to authority of God. You have to live for his glory. And then you have to believe in his death and resurrection. And to believe in his death is to believe that the righteousness of God comes to you to cover your nakedness through the death of the perfect lamb. That's what it means. You have to despair of any goodness in yourself and think my only goodness is this lamb of God whose blood was shed for me. And I know he's perfect because his father vindicated him, raised him from the dead. If you believe those things, if you forget about your own goodness, (laughs) because you don't have any, you don't have any. If you forget about your own goodness, and remember my dad in in his uh, psalm on the death of an 18-year-old son at the very end, he's so angry at God for taking his third child. He's so angry. You remember that poem? God, why did you do this? Why did you do this? This is an an action of a lunatic. Why did you take him? He would have given himself to you. He would have served you. Why did you take him? You remember at the very end, dad says, basically, all right, it's your decision. And I am under your authority. And then he uses a word. Do you remember what it is? That's right. He says, this is my quit claim. This is my quit claim. I've had my say. I've said my piece. I'm angry. And now I will shut up. And you are God. And that's what it means to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You just shut up. You don't bring anything to him. You don't whine. You shut up. And then you grab on to this righteous lamb. And you never stop holding on. Now, if you look at the next verse... Look at what it says. It goes on and it says this. You will be saved for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. And it's very easy for us to think that it is our belief that communicates righteousness and that's not true. We're always trying to bring something to God. And so, you know, you could think, well, I have to believe and if I really believe, then the promise is for me. That's not true. Faith is only the instrument by which God communicates to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't make faith into a work. First of all, because it's a gift. The Bible says this. Faith is a gift of God. 
But I mean, we're all so committed to doing something ourselves that we always turn faith into a work. Well, if I have enough faith, you know, if I can just get up enough faith, then I'll have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so I give God faith, and in return for my faith, he gives me righteousness. If I don't have faith, I don't get the righteousness. That's not how faith works. It's not how faith works. Faith is the instrument that God uses to give you a righteousness that has nothing to do with the faith. The faith isn't the righteousness, okay? It's very easy for us to hear this and to say to ourselves, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Well, if you believe and that results in righteousness, then it must be that belief is righteousness itself. You know, you believe enough, then you have enough righteousness, but that is not the way that faith works. First of all, faith is a gift from God. And second, because of that gift, God then transfers to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That righteousness is not your belief and it's not your faith. It is Christ. Only the righteousness of Christ can ever cover your sin. Every time you're lying in bed or taking a walk and you're thinking of your terrible sins of your life, all of us have them, you need to stop and think of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is your quit claim. That's it. You think of the Lamb of God and you see him on the cross condemned as a sinner, and he is righteous. And you know that God has accepted that death, that suffering, in place of you and your death and your suffering. Because Jesus died for you and was righteous, God is willing and his plan to transfer to you his son's righteousness. Now, how righteous is his son? How righteous is Jesus? Jesus is perfectly righteous. And so when you put your faith in him, he has more than enough to cover your sin. And it says, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And so again, you can think, well, you know, if I confess, I'll be saved. And again, it seems as if that's what it's saying. And it is true that if you don't confess with your mouth, you will not be saved. (laughs) Right? And so how can I say that? Well, I say that because there's absolutely no way that a man can have faith, a woman, a child can have faith. There is no way for you to have faith without confessing with your mouth. How on earth do you put your faith in Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sin and love and honor him. How do you do that without speaking of it to others? There's no way. We're not talking about intellectual assent. The blood of Jesus is not a head trip. It's not a hypothetical. If you ever think that it's all about what you think with your head, I want you to go to the Old Testament and read all the rituals of blood. You can sum up the Old Testament law as a riot of blood. And you think to yourself, what kind of garish pagan deity is this that is constantly dealing in blood? Having blood thrown on the priest, blood thrown on the people, blood on the altar, blood, 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 blood. What on earth? And then you come to the cross Blood on the doorposts in Egypt, the Passover. And then you realize that he was that he was crucified. And he shed his blood to wash away your sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. Then you read in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How on earth could you, as a lover of this lamb, this Jesus, how could you keep your mouth shut? (laughs) How could you not confess Jesus? How could you not? Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Listen to Calvin on this. Calvin says, those of our day, this is five centuries ago, those of our day who proudly boast to us of an imaginary faith, which being content with the secrecy of the heart, neglect the confession of the mouth as being a superfluous and empty thing, must see what answer they are to give to Paul. It's quite nonsensical to insist that there is fire where there is neither flame nor heat. Oh my goodness, how can you love Jesus? How can you trust in his righteousness and his blood for eternal life? And shut up. How do you do that? How is it that you have it in your heart but you can't say anything? How is it that you have it in your heart and you can't sing? You remember what William Law says in a serious call to a devout and holy life writing a few centuries ago? You remember what he says? He says, there are many people who claim to be Christians and they won't sing in worship. Remember this? 
He says, how is it that they can't sing? Men, why won't they sing? And then he says, you know, when it comes to somebody who really cares about something, they can't help but sing. He says, for instance, go into the pub on the weekend. And they get a little bit of booze in them. They all sing. Go to Man U or Man City. Go to Chelsea. They all sing. Now, if we don't confess with our mouth, it's because we have no love. It's not confession with our mouth that saves us. But a lack of confession indicates a lack of gratitude and a lack of love and a lack of submission, okay? And so those of you who have parents that want you to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, don't resent them and refuse to do it to show that you're stronger willed than your parents are. Because there's nothing in this world, even being Dutch, Don, I mean, the Dutch is much. But even Dutchmen will sing if they love Jesus. Right? I've watched Don as he's come to this church. And as he's come, Don has realized more and more his sin. I know because I'm his pastor. And sometimes if he thinks his children and his wife aren't watching him, you know what he does? I've watched him in worship. He's Dutch. He'll be sitting next to you, you know, like this, right? And, and all the people prepared to condemn him sitting on his left. <laughs> Don't worry, that's just saying that you're his children and wife. I'm not making any statement about the family. This is just a state of nature. Okay? And as we worship, he'll go like this. You know, this, this arm, the one that's hardest to see, furthest from you and hidden by his body will go up in the air. And I always just am like, yes, a Dutchman. Brothers and sisters, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart, that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be saved. And that's the end. I find it unbelievable. Don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. God has accepted me. I find it unbelievable. I don't mind you finding it unbelievable. But don't you judge me. God has accepted me. And you know what I be doing right now? I be confessing with me mouth. You can say, yeah, but you get paid to do it. (laughs) I say, yeah, 
I can't argue with that. I do get paid to do it. But as I've often said, if you stop paying me, I'll keep doing it. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to be saved? Father God, we pray, would you please bend down to us? We're so proud, so resistant. And yet, Father, we know our sin and we can't bear it. Father, open our eyes to our sin that we might flee to our Lord Jesus Christ. Open our mouths this week, Father. Give us opportunities to testify to our mom and to our brothers and sisters, to the pastor, to our neighbors, to the other kids at school, that Jesus is Lord. Father, we think about Adam whose absence here is still raw to us. And we thank you for the way he led us in zeal in confessing Jesus Christ. 